All right, you with me? Thank you. Sorry for the distraction. Uh, my name is Jeremy, I'm the pastor here, and uh, thankful to be with you this morning and thankful to be starting this new series that I think is going to be uh, challenging, scary, new for many of us, myself included, um, but I think massively rewarding in the potential of what uh, this book did to its original hearers and what this book may do for us uh, as well. Because does church ever get boring to you? No, no, no. Of course. Yeah, like church gets boring. The old story of the gospel kind of just gets old. You hear me say the same thing week after week. You read the Bible week after week. There can be a complacency and sort of a laissez-faireness that can come over many of us just because we live in this crazy, chaotic world. We live with these crazy, chaotic selves, and so much of what we want is for this thing to change these things and to change those things out there. And yet so often it feels like those are completely separate worlds. A study was released in 2019 Uh, by the Barna Group that said 40% of those surveyed, U.S. adults, believe that church is no longer relevant for the modern world. 20% of those were practicing Christians. So there is a chasm between our lived experience of normal life and what the Bible says is true and real. And the beauty of the book of Revelation is that it comes to us and says, you don't have to feel ashamed about that. Like, God knows that's how you feel. God knows that it feels like this church world that we live in these couple of hours on a Sunday and our real world out there in our lives and even this real world that we live with inside our own hearts feels so separate sometimes. And this thing can become so rote and so boring and so meh. Because the real issues that we need help with are the ones that we're facing when we walk back out the doors. That's where the book of Revelation comes in. Uh, if you're familiar with the, uh, the time at which C.S. Lewis published the Chronicles of Narnia, it happened right in the wake of World War II. So a similar time and space when everything out there felt so chaotic And everything in church world felt like it just was not speaking anywhere. It wasn't making any kind of dent in the awful realities that were happening out there. And so, Lewis decided to write a fairy story. And he goes on to explain why he decided to write a fairy tale in the middle of the chaos of World War II. And he said, I think we have this up here. He said, I wrote fairy tales... Because the fairy tale seemed like an ideal form for the stuff I had to say. I thought I saw how sto- uh, sorry, I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition that had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told they ought to feel about God or about the suffering of Christ? You ever felt that way? Like, I know I should feel, like, moved that Jesus died for me, but I don't always feel that way. I know I should feel moved by singing holy, 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 but sometimes I don't. He goes on to say, 
I thought the chief reason was that one told me I ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feeling. And reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it was something medical. But supposing that by casting all of these into an imaginary world, stripping them of their sustained glass Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. The book of Revelation comes to steal past the watchful dragons of our natural complacency or cynicism as we get beat up by the world week after week. To steal past all of our natural inhibitions that would say, "Mm -mm, not for me, or at least not for me in the deepest parts of where I need help or the deepest longings that I feel. Yeah, it doesn't really touch that. I know Jesus died for me. I know I'm going to heaven one day. That's great. Two thumbs up. Really excited about it. But for the now, I need help now. And Revelation comes to give help. Because it's one thing to say, you know, Jesus is powerful, guys. Yeah? It's another thing to say, I saw Jesus and his eyes were like fire. It's one thing to say, Jesus loves you. It's another thing to say, I saw Jesus as a groom prepared and waiting for his beautiful bride. You see, these images are not meant to distract from the main point, but are all meant to drive towards the main point of there is a bigger reality than the one we currently inhabit. It's not that the one we currently inhabit doesn't exist or isn't real. What we experience in our normal everyday life is reality. But Revelation comes to say there is so much more. There is so much going on that you and I are not naturally attuned to. And God comes to John, and John comes to us to say something new. So these, these larger-than-life, many of what we're going to read, the images, the descriptions may throw you off, may feel like, I, I am more confused than helped by this. Maybe a, a good way to start would be each one of these giant images, like Jesus as the bride, like Jesus with eyes of fire, are not meant to be read as on a one-for-one basis, are not meant to be read in a super literal, that must mean this, because this book is not meant to be an analogy. But each one of these images is meant to peel back the curtain. It's meant not so much to speak to this, but to speak to this. Because that image of Jesus with eyes like fire speaks to something in here that I need. I need to believe there's a power outside of myself and bigger than myself to give me hope to walk back out into all the places that I feel powerless. I need to believe that there is a love that goes down deeper than any of my longings that can satisfy me because I go out there and I look for it everywhere else. That's where Revelation speaks. So the impact is meant to be in the impressions that it makes, more so than what they do to our understanding 
They're meant to shape our emotions. So <clears throat> what we're going to do between now and Christmas is dive into this book. We're not going to go in a purely chronological way. There's going to be a little bit of jumping around, but predominantly there's going to be seven sections that we're going to walk through. The book of Revelation is written in these seven sections. Prologue, five different visions, epilogue, seven sections. And what we're going to do is walk through each of those seven sections, each of those visions, but each of those visions, this is also helpful to keep in mind, are all pointing ultimately, they're like looking at a diamond from different perspectives, more so than being completely unique thoughts. And so we're looking at this diamond that is the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. And we're looking at it from all of these different vantage points. That's what these five visions are. And the book is meant to be read aloud. So we're going to read it aloud. Uh, it was originally circulated in ancient times from church to church to church, read as a whole, all together aloud. And so bring yourself, as it were, back into that first century context where you were feeling the weight of persecution, where you were feeling the weight of the brokenness of this world outside and inside of you, hungry for hope. And here comes Revelation 1. So, Emily, did you read for us? Yeah! John to this, can y'all hear me? Can you move it down? <laughs> Thank you. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard him behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Emily. One other thing that I want to mention. Can I borrow this for a minute? Yeah. Um, 
One other thing to mention, if following along in sermons is hard for you, if you're a middle schooler or a high schooler sitting in here for the first time, uh, or if you still have the brain of a middle schooler and a high schooler like all of us do, uh, this thing, this clipboard is a way to think through and listen through to the sermon. So you can find those clipboards on the back. Just wanted to mention that. Hadn't done that in a little while. Thank you. Okay. So here's what we're going to do. Very, very introductory sermon this morning. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What is it? Why does it matter? That's all we're going to try to do. Uh, There will be many other weeks to get into some of these weeds. Okay. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What is it? So picture this. You're John, the apostle, the one who Jesus loved, uh, the writer of the gospel of John, who had lived with, been with, and watched Jesus heal and love and speak and die and rise and ascend. He had now lived over 80 years of his life faithfully, continuing to witness about this Jesus who was his friend. And here you are. It's AD 96. And you're on an island. Not metaphorically, actually on an island. He's sitting in a cave outlooking the Aegean Sea. This cave had been hewn out by wind and waves, battering it for generations. He can hear the clink, clink, clink of rocks being smashed by pickaxes and the crack of whips from Roman soldiers who were holding these prisoners at bay. He himself was a prisoner at this time. Uh, He'd been sitting uh, in this cave, which also doubled as his cell for the past four years. When it says in verse 9 that I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom, was on an island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What he's saying is, I'm here and have been here for the past four years, exiled as a prisoner because I opened my mouth about Jesus. Particularly, uh, there had been a Roman emperor who had come to power named Domitian. And Domitian was particularly insecure, and the more insecure you are in leadership, the more you have to oppress those around you to receive that which you are hoping to get, which is power and glory. And so he decided that uh, not only was he the Roman emperor, but he also asked everyone to call him Lord and God. And in order to now venerate his lordship and his godness. Everyone had to enter the temple, had to take a pinch of incense, had to put it on the altar, and had to say, Hail, Caesar. Caesar is Lord. This is one in the line of many Caesars, of many Roman emperors who had done similar things, uh, but this one just upped the ante. And so it was that that brought John to that moment on that altar where he had the opportunity to either hail Caesar or hail his Lord, his friend, his king, who he had seen 
live and die and rise. And he said, I can't do this. And they said, it's all you, you just got to just do this and put it. I can even help you. I'll just put your hand right in the, it's all you have to do. He said, no, I can't. And he was such a, an influential Christian in that area at that time. Perhaps that's why he wasn't just martyred on the spot. He wasn't just initially killed for his, uh, for this murderous accusation that actually Caesar wasn't Lord, but Jesus was. Instead, they took him away, they put him on this island, and there he had been for the past four years. And then verse 10 goes on. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in this book and send it to the seven churches. So presumably one day he's in his cave, he's awaiting his next work detail, and he's in prayer. And his hands uh, that are weather-worn and blistered are cupped, uh, and he's feeling the weight of that pickaxe as it swings over and over again in his back. And he's weighted more so than his own condition. He's weighted by the condition of the churches in the area because he knows the same thing that he's experiencing, so they are too. And worse, many had been martyred. Most of the 12 disciples by this time had been martyred. And so his heart is going out in prayer on one Sunday which was the new day to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. And he hears what seems to be a trumpet behind him. That must have been surprising, being that he was in a cave on an island. And he hears in that moment, write this down. He says, write this vision down. Write this revelation down. The word revelation there means literally apocalypse. This is a, which when we hear the word apocalypse, we tend to think about the end of the world and I don't know, like, uh, you know, people with like tats and vests and like riding, you know, motorcycles out in the dust bowl that's created when the world ends. And instead he's coming in and he's speaking and he's saying, there is something here that you have to see. In a very similar way that the Old Testament prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel, when they prophesied, would use these, these bigger-than-life images to communicate. And he's saying this particularly to these seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna. If you were to map them, they'd look like this. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea all representing this is the church in its current form as a whole. This is one way to represent, I am coming. Jesus is saying, I am coming with a message for my church. And as true as it was for those seven churches back then, so it is true for Midtown Freefall this morning. He says, I have a message for you today. Now, Kind of like Zach Morris in Saved by the Bell, where sometimes he would go meta and like pause everything that was happening around him and like step out for a minute. Uh, we're going to have to do this as we go on because there's moments where we need to understand a little bit more in detail about what's going on. So pause. This is a little glossary moment. Uh, when you see the word seven, which by the way, we've already said there's seven books uh, seven ways that this book is, is divided up. 
when you see there's seven spirits around the throne here, when you see that there are, uh, there are seven churches here, all of those seven is meant to represent completion, fullness, perfection. So again, he's saying to these seven churches, but by way of saying this is a complete picture of my church, so he's representing the entire church, both then and forever. Okay, now we can enter back in. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, meaning the, the writing, there is a unique genre of writing called apocalyptic literature, similar to the fairy story that C.S. Lewis was talking about. We know that we don't live in a world with magic fawns who play flutes, but we wish we did. And in the same way, these images are being used to to communicate something that is true using bigger-than-life images that are not necessarily accurate by way of literacy. They're not to be taken literally. In a sense, what was happening between the, the conclusion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was this sort of like Jewish fan fiction that began to take place. Uh, while they were waiting for new prophecy to come, new real word from the Lord, what they began to do was to encourage each other, borrowing from some of the language of the Old Testament prophets, borrowing from some of those images, they would then take those and weave those into these stories that would be communicating hope and truth and reality. God is real. He is alive. He is at work. I know he's quiet right now, but that does not mean he is gone or that he has forgotten us. And in that same style of writing, so this book now takes on that same genre. So this is, again, this is meant to be read in that style. Here's some common features. Common features like people being represented by animals were common to this genre. Historical events communicated as analogies to natural disasters. Colors and numbers, we've already talked about the number seven, we'll get to some others. Colors and numbers representing, having meanings for things outside of themselves. And fourth, larger than life images. Okay? So the goal then of this type of literature, the word itself, apocalypse, literally means to pull back. To pull back the curtain and see something that you couldn't see unless the curtain had been pulled back. So this book is particularly helpful uh, if you're looking for just some more reading on this topic as we go through this. Discipleship on the Edge by Daryl Johnson, super helpful book. This is how he describes what is, how should we read Revelation. He says, it sets the present, where we are now, in light of the unseen realities of the future and... It sets the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. Meaning, it gives us a glimpse as what is Jesus doing right now and what will Jesus do in the future. And those two things are constantly happening as we read through the next 12 weeks. Okay, 
Last, I know this has been kind of teachy, but we're just getting through this so we can understand as we continue to read. One of the things that you're going to hear come up a lot is that last verse. What is the big truth that supersedes all others that can help us understand as we read all these images, what is God really trying to say to us? And it's in, we just read it, Emily just read it, in chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world our present reality now, what we experience, has become, present tense, has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That is the thesis statement of the book of Revelation. The kingdom of God has come to earth. The kingdom of God is coming to earth completely. It's everything we've been talking about for the last seven, eight weeks throughout the summer. As we talk through the Lord's Prayer, as we talk through the kingdom of God, all of this imagery fits right into where we find ourselves now. Okay. With all of that as a backdrop, why does this matter to me and to you in the now, in our present reality? Why does this matter? Uh, When I was eight-ish, uh, my family took a trip up the New England, up the East Coast, and uh, and spent some time in the New England area. This was a summer trip; school was off, and we found ourselves on the Fourth of July in Philly. And so we went to whatever the you know the biggest gathering in Philly was for fireworks. And I remember there's just you know I'm this little bitty dude. People are crowding in all around me. And uh, it's like just getting to dusk. It's not totally dark yet, so we still think we probably got 30 minutes or so until, uh, it's time, until it's time for the fireworks. And all of a sudden we hear, boom! And kind of think, oh, well, somebody must have like set off a firework early or maybe the technician guy pushed the button too early. What happened? And then about, I don't know, another 50 yards ahead of us, this crowd starts to jostle around, and screams start to come out of it. And then that whole crowd that's over here starts to press back and kind of fall back into us. And then my mom kind of grabs me like this. Uh, All this is kind of fuzzy in my brain, but from what I remember, my mom kind of grabs me like this, and all of the crowd begins to disperse, and all of a sudden we start hearing, gunshot, gunshot, run. And uh, she pulls me away, the crowd is pressing in, and I'm not sure how far we walked or ran or whatever, and we wind up in this ice cream parlor. And there's glass windows all the way around, and I can see people streaming and running beside us. And they happen to have one of those old-school Pac-Man games, but it was, it was the Pac-Man that was built into the table, and it had the plexiglass top so you could play while you ate your ice cream. And all I remember is being so focused in on that little table and so focused in on my little Pac-Man game. While all of this chaos is happening around me, I am zoned in. The chaos in the world we live in will naturally, our hearts will naturally want to close up and shut down. Because rightly, 
this world is not what we were made for. The present reality of the chaos of this world is not what we were made. We were not made to live in fear for our lives through wars. We were not meant to live with this divided heart that both loves God and loves a whole lot of other things other than him and more than him. We were not meant to have to worry about sending our children to school and if they were going to come back home. We were not meant for the broken realities that we live in every day. And so very naturally, those things will cause us to turn in on ourselves. This world is too hard, and so I've just got to protect myself. Just this week, there's a coup in Niger. There's the war continues to battle in Ukraine. Our former president is being indicted. There's wildfires on one of the most beautiful places on the planet in Hawaii. Uh, there's a riverfront brawl that happens in Montgomery, Alabama. Chaos rules and reigns, it feels. And in the same way, when that happens, in all of our normal life, let alone the 24-hour news cycle, when we're overwhelmed by parenting, when more money is going out than is coming in, when illness is breaking our body down, when our to-do list is longer than the time there is in the day, when our car breaks down, when we have a fight with a friend, when marriage is difficult, all of those things will naturally want to shut us down. And there's two ways we can tend to deal with this. And these are the two ways that John is speaking into and will continue in the remainder of our weeks together on this. Some of us will choose to then grow hard to put up the, ha- the heckles, to pick a side, to play the blame game, to not let anybody in because it hurts too much, to not really love anyone else except ourselves in that way. Others will cope with alcohol, with food, with sex, with vacations, whatever it is, whatever your du jour, just to make some semblance of goodness out of this world that seems so bad. Complacency or cynicism are the enemies of hope. Jesus is calling your heart this morning to hope. Hope maybe for the first time. Hope maybe when you've tasted it, little by little, over the course of your life with Jesus. Hope for the hopeless who are here this morning, who have never tasted that freedom. Wherever you find yourself, these larger-than-life images, this Jesus is communicating something to us. Have hope. Why? (laughs) Because our hearts are constantly asking this question, will I be okay? Am I okay? Will I be okay? And again, hear Jesus' compassion. These are not places for us to turn away from him in shame. Jesus, I have done this. I have been complacent with this life that you've given me. I have grown cynical and had my heckles up against everybody else because it hurts too much. Jesus knows what sin has done to you. He knows what the brokenness of this world has done to you, and he has come to bring comfort and to bring hope. And so he says these three things about himself. Listen to his his first words in the passage that Emily just read. He doesn't say get in line. He says grace and peace to you. And then he goes on to describe himself in three ways. 
He says, I am the faithful witness. I am the firstborn from the dead, and I am the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus is saying, I've lived in your skin. I, I have been the faithful witness who has lived among you, who has taken my godness and constrained it into a human body and lived in all of the chaos of your world and lived in the temptation and the sin that assaults and assails you every day and lived in the brokenness of losing friendships and living in the brokenness of literally watching people that I love die and living in the, the brokenness in the world of trying to maintain a relationship with God when everything else was coming in at me at all sides. I've lived that way with you and among you. And I have found myself to be faithful the entire way through. Jesus is the only one in the history of humanity who has lived a perfectly faithful life. And he goes on to say, I'm the firstborn of the dead, meaning I have not only loved you so much that I would constrain myself and live in your world, but I've loved you so much that I would constrain myself to die. And as the firstborn from the dead to rise again, making everything that you hate about this world eventually untrue. Reversing the curse, as it were, of sin and death putting it on a clock, saying your days are numbered. And then finally to say, and I am the, uh, the ruler of the kings of the earth, because as one who has lived, died, rose again, he has now ascended and sits and rules and reigns such that any ruler on earth, any president, any king, any bad boss that you have is ultimately under his thumb. And will be taken care of. And you will be taken care of in every way that you need. He has not lost you. He has not forgotten you. He has not gone anywhere. He is real. He does exist. And he is in your life. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen, it says. And so in the words of one of my favorite preachers, Steve Brown, so relax. Go get an ice cream. Smile. Like Jesus is king. He is working. He is in charge. Nothing goes by him. And he's not saying that flippantly, but he's saying in the reality, if that's actually what's true, then we can smile and laugh and dance and enjoy the friendship that we have, enjoy this room for what it is, enjoy our families to the degree that they're enjoyable, and maybe even more so, <laughs> all of those things. He has given now as gifts, not that we have to just muddle through, but that we actually get to see in what ways the kingdom is breaking through now, and we can embrace those and say, thank you, Jesus, for this gift. Because he goes on to say, I am the alpha and the omega, meaning I am the first, the template of everything that is good, and I am the last. I am the completion of everything that is good. And because I created it and made it good and am making sure that it will be good, you can trust that your life right now, you can find good and you can find truth and you can find beauty and it can be celebrated for what it is. That's the kingdom breaking in to this world. But here's what we know. Like when the Apollo 13 mission as it had gone out and experienced all the chaos that it had is coming back and re-entering the atmosphere. There's all of that 
When you come back into the atmosphere, you see fire, you see trembling, you see smoke, you, see, you feel like you're going to die. And in the same way, as Jesus begins to press into this world, there is much confusion, much chaos, where many of us just feel like we're going to die. What we don't realize is all of the chaos that is out there is actually part of the scrambling of evil as it's in the process of being defeated. That's the world we live in. That's what Jesus, our King, is up to. And that's what the book of Revelation calls you and I to live in the middle of and in the reality of today. So as we spend these next 12 weeks together on the book of Revelation, uh, another story that came out of this book to close. Don't worry so much about understanding every little thing that's going on because John didn't understand every little thing that was going on. Let's catch the big picture together. Uh, the story that he shares is there was a, a group of guys, a group of seminarians who were playing basketball, uh, and they would leave their Bibles and their books and their stuff while they would go play basketball. One day, they, uh, as they're done, they walk back over, and the janitor has picked up a Bible and has started to read it. And they say, what you reading there? And he says, oh, just a book of Revelation. <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, that's kind of, uh, kind of hefty reading there, don't you think? And he says, no, I totally understand it. And these group of seminarians who are, you know, so high on their theological horses are like, yeah, right. And he says, yeah, I understand the whole thing. Jesus wins. The end. <laughs> so Jesus wins. And let's continue to remind ourselves of that reality as we continue on in the series. So Jesus, we pray that you would... Uh, more and more convince us that that is true, uh, that you would win in our hearts, uh, that you would conquer uh, those devils of complacency and cynicism, uh, that you would, by your Spirit's power, expel them from our hearts, uh, help us to see and live with a new sense of hope and expectation of what you're doing, what you, based on what you have done, and in the hope of what you will do. So, Come, Lord Jesus, in this series, in our lives, in our church, in this city. We pray for your glory's sake. Amen.